Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault and sexual coercion that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Liz had spent months waiting for this exact moment. Today, she would finally meet the love of her life. She'd already sent Jung Myung-suk countless letters, even pictures of herself in a bikini. Liz had bared her soul over and over again, telling Jung how much she loved him, how much she would never be with anyone else. And in 2012, she could finally meet him. But Liz wasn't alone. She was only one of about a dozen young women who boarded the 11-hour flight from Sydney to Seoul in hopes of catching a glimpse of their spiritual savior. Together, they made their way from the city to Daejeon Prison. The setting didn't ooze romance. Liz and the other women were ushered into a plain visiting room with a thick glass partition. After so much travel, Liz would only have 15 minutes with the man she dedicated her entire life to. Suddenly, a door opened and in walked Jung. He didn't look much like the man that Liz had seen in photographs. He was over 60 years old in muted prison scrubs. At first, Liz wasn't sure he would recognize her. But when Jung sat across from his devoted group of followers, his face immediately blossomed into a grin of recognition. Liz, he said. Jung knew her by name. It might not have been much, but it was enough for Liz. She was willing to do whatever it took to be with Jung, to please him. She would travel continents to see him. She belonged to him. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode discussing Providence, a South Korean cult that groomed young women to serve as spiritual brides for the group's self-proclaimed messiah, Jung Myung-suk. Last week, we discussed how he built a community of devoted followers and copied the control tactics from other religious sects to make women completely reliant on him. This week, we'll broaden our scope to look at Providence as a massive international movement We'll discuss its expansion, its endurance, and how the group survived an unexpected scandal. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets 
and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. By the mid-1990s, Jung Myung-suk had built Providence into a bona fide religious phenomenon in South Korea. The group had churches across the country, all of which taught that Jung was the next messiah, tasked with the holy burden of spreading God's message of love to the masses. For Jung, that meant two things. First, the movement promoted a belief system called the 30 Lessons, which re-examined the Bible. Most notably, Jung cast doubt over Jesus' success as a messiah. In turn, he emphasized his own comparative strength, showing his followers that he was the one true savior. The second part of Jung's mission applied specifically to his female followers. Jung encouraged the women in his flock to see him not only as a deity, but as a husband or lover. And that meant many of the female members were Jung's spiritual brides. Women were expected to be attractive, especially if they were around Jung. Those courted by Jung were also discouraged from having any kind of relationship with another man. The more a woman dedicated herself to Jung, the closer she came to true salvation. And many saw sex with Jung as the ultimate form of purification. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to writers Jill Corey and Karen McCandless-Davis in their book, When Love Hurts, A Woman's Guide to Abuse in Relationships, abusive men uphold personal beliefs that encourage their power and control over women. And across the board, those beliefs contain three components. The man is central, he is superior, and he is deserving of unquestionable privileges from the woman in his life. This book specifically addressed domestic abuse and women who are in abusive romantic relationships with men. Jung's case was unique. He claimed that he had a partnership with hundreds of women and manipulated them into believing it, but that itself was a form of abuse. Jung based Providence's entire belief system on coercive language that served to manipulate female followers into doing whatever he asked of them. Jung was always the person to please, and the figure placed above all others. Jung's system of abuse worked exceptionally well. By securing a place as a messiah, Jung gave himself permission to do just about anything and behave however he wanted without the fear of blowback. In the beginning of the 1990s, Jung ruled his movement from the Providence headquarters in Womyang-dong, a man-made utopia designed to showcase the movement's connection with nature. Jung brought his most prized spiritual brides there for their so-called purification rituals. This was also where a few select members of the group were given the privilege of studying from Jung directly. 
The self-titled messiah, now middle-aged, had a comfortable grip on his growing movement of several thousand members. But he wasn't satisfied. If Zheng was meant to preach the gospel to the world, then he needed to think on a much larger scale. Zheng wasted no time expanding his religious empire. Throughout the 1990s, providence spread to several nearby countries, including Taiwan and Japan. And in 1997, the group touched down in Australia. It's difficult to know exactly how Zheng mobilized so many people to set up recruitment in multiple countries at once, but we do know that he had an extremely dedicated following of thousands of people. It's not hard to imagine that many would have been willing to serve as messengers for Zheng's holy mission. Expansion meant a wealth of lost souls ready to hear the word of God. And more people meant more young, beautiful women. Brides that Zheng could control, manipulate, and have at his beck and call. He already had hundreds of spiritual brides, but Zheng was a collector. And as the decade came to a close, he was on track for everything he desired. But not everyone welcomed Providence when its members arrived on foreign soil. Many locals were wary of the group and its bizarre interpretation of Christianity. And as more young women were brought into Providence, parents became concerned that their daughters were being influenced by a dangerous organization. Undeterred, the group continued its recruitment efforts, trying to coerce more people, especially young women, into the fold. But Providence also began experiencing a small trickle of fallout among its female members. Here and there, handfuls of women were leaving. This wasn't particularly unusual for any religious group. People become disillusioned or disinterested, and they leave. But Providence was different. So much of the group's work centered on its female members. Women were supposed to look a certain way, behave in accordance with Jung's wishes, and see themselves as his property. However, not everyone was so easily manipulated. For some female members, Jung's demands were a bridge too far. The number of deserters wasn't enough to stop the growth of the movement, but it quickly became a problem. With followers leaving, it was only a matter of time before some spoke out. In 1999, a South Korean news channel broadcasted a story accusing Jung of sexually assaulting his followers. This story sounded the alarm for Jung. He had to act, and fast. He couldn't go to jail. He was the messiah. In his mind, thousands of people relied on him for their spiritual healing. He had seen how a scandal could destroy a religious movement. Twenty years before, Jung watched as the Reverend Moon was overcome with legal scandals, which stunted his group's growth. Jung wouldn't allow for the same thing to happen to him. Jung made a drastic decision. He had to leave South Korea. There was no way to know what would happen to Providence, or how Jung would continue commanding the group while also hiding from the police. But for the middle-aged prophet, this was the only way to protect his sacred duty. He had no other choice. The group would have to find a way to survive without him and continue his vision of a world of peace as he watched from afar. For Jung, this was the only path to save Providence. Coming up, Providence tries to keep the balance, and Jung is caught in the crosshairs. 
Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. Hi, Parcasters. It's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland, where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico, where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer. And travel to New Zealand, where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location, and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. At the start of 1999, Providence was on a winning streak that seemed unstoppable. The religious group expanded at a swift pace, with dedicated members setting up Providence outposts in Taiwan, Japan, and Australia. The more Providence grew, the more young, beautiful women joined the group. Jung preyed on his female members, coercing them into having sex with him under the guise of spiritual purification. It was all part of the Providence belief system, and until 1999, this practice had largely gone on uninterrupted. But within the year, a growing wave of sexual assault allegations came to light. Dozens of women from multiple countries began speaking about their experience in Providence and named Jung as a sexual predator. There was the very real possibility that Jung could face jail time. In his mind, only one solution stuck out. He needed to flee the country. He planned to hide out in China and hope that no charges were officially filed in South Korea. China was large enough that, in theory, Jung could go on with business as usual without bringing attention to himself. We don't know much about how Jung planned to survive after he quietly left Wolmyongdong in 1999. It isn't even clear how much time he had to plan for this escape or how he coordinated this move. But Jung certainly had help. Despite growing controversy, Providence still claimed thousands of followers. Within that massive group of people, there must have been members who were willing to use their status, money, or connections to help their savior get to safety. The escape plan seemed to be a total success. Jung left South Korea without any incident and disappeared into the Chinese landscape. For the time, the Messiah appeared safe, but Providence needed to find a way to survive in Jung's absence. 
As it turned out, Jung had built a group that functioned extremely well without his direct influence. In Australia, for example, Providence followers treated Jung like a full-fledged god, even though he was physically thousands of miles away. His followers increasingly saw him as an intangible force of good. There wasn't much of a conversation around meeting Jung, so much as emulating him. This seemed especially true for new members. Recruiters often didn't even mention Jung at first, preferring instead to couch Providence around more familiar Christian ideals. If anything, it seemed beneficial for the recruits to have Jung be out of the picture. That way, they could easily paint him as a benevolent leader, a force of good who should be trusted. As former cult member and author Daniel Shaw writes for Spiritual Abuse Resources, distancing the cult from the leader, at least at first, can be a common recruitment tactic. As he explains, speakers and members present various kinds of misinformation about cult leaders, including concealing their existence altogether. Shaw also said that recruiters often twisted or omitted unpleasant information about their leader to make the group fit into a more flattering frame. Providence recruiters, for example, quickly found it useful to describe Jung's run from the police as an instance of spiritual persecution. And if the sexual assault allegations came up, they were always framed around Jung as the wrongly accused party. But no amount of flimsy excuse could save Jung from facing the consequences of his actions. In 2001, local newspapers in Taiwan began posting articles quoting former female members of Providence. They described being raped and sexually manipulated by Jung. According to these articles, young women and girls were made to undress during fake health checks. They also described the purification ceremony in which they were forced to have sex with Jung to rid themselves of sin. Providence immediately put out a statement denying all claims, but the problem didn't go away. The timeline isn't clear, but from what we can tell, these articles sparked even more women to come forward. Other women described similar instances of sexual coercion. Stories came out about how Jung picked women from a stack of photographs, or how other members of the group presented young female members as gifts for their leader. Even in his absence, the South Korean police officially charged Jung with sexual assault charges in 2001, which put pressure on Chinese authorities to find the elusive religious leader and extradite him. But the group didn't see Jung's legal troubles as a real threat to Providence. If anything, the charges made Jung even more Christ-like, a martyr with a revolutionary movement that the powers thought needed to be punished. For Providence members, the charges were proof of the government's unfair persecution of their beloved Messiah. His ideas were too radical, and, as Jung's followers told themselves, the government saw this as a threat. Few knew of Jung's whereabouts, but that only made him even more alluring. He had transformed into an unseen force of good, much like God himself. This proved a surprisingly efficient way to keep the group running, and as far as recruitment goes, it worked. It's surprisingly difficult to find concrete numbers that show exactly how many churches Providence established abroad by the early 2000s. But the group did well, given the worrisome condition of their leader and savior. Out of the several countries that Providence chose for expansion, they seemed particularly interested in gaining traction in Australia, 
and it didn't take long for the movement to take off. Their recruitment strategy was simple, covert, and extremely effective. Members, usually beautiful women themselves, scoured fashion malls for tall, elegant-looking women. The recruiters approached these strangers and complimented them, asking if they were models or if they thought about becoming one. They would talk with their targets, and the recruiters then invited the potential member to a seemingly unrelated event. Sometimes it was modeling classes, an art show, or Bible study, if the prospective recruit appeared open to religion straight away. Anything to get someone in the door and under the influence of the group. Women were made to feel that they were making friends through these activities, that the group offered them a community of like-minded people. Providence recruiters slowly introduced the group's religious doctrine through these innocuous events. Those who bought in joined more events, and some even moved into shared apartments with members of the group. Bit by bit, these women were isolated from their lives pre-Providence, and soon they only had the group. The whole recruitment process was a game of smoke and mirrors. These young women were tricked into thinking that they were making every choice themselves, while they were being quietly guided by unseen hands. The recruiters were often the most memorable and most successful component of the process. They were beautiful, stylish, and always smiling. The smile seemed the most unusual part. One father, whose daughter was recruited into an Australian Providence outpost, described members as having Cheshire Cat-like smiles. The grin promised something vaguely sinister, but that was often only visible to those looking at the group from the outside. Within the confines of Providence's belief system, nothing seemed dangerous at all, and more and more joined the fold. For four years after Jung's escape out of South Korea, Providence continued as if nothing had changed. From his disappearance in 1999 until 2003, the leader's whereabouts were kept completely secret. Those within the group believed he was safe. As the Messiah, God would surely protect him. But while the group continued to expand, the South Korean government intensified its search efforts. China had an extradition agreement with its regional neighbor, which guaranteed that Jung would be sent back to South Korea for sentencing if captured. For Jung, the stakes of his cat-and-mouse game were extremely high. He couldn't make a mistake. Unfortunately for the self-named Messiah, his lucky streak came to an end. In February of 2003, authorities discovered Jung in a crudely made tent, somewhere in the forests of Hong Kong. As with many things surrounding Zhang's life, the details about his capture remain vague. In grainy video footage, Zhang appears in silhouette, rummaging inside his tent. His lodging looked to be nothing more than a tarp, loosely draped over two poles in the middle of a lush jungle landscape. In 2003, Zhang was 58 years old, but in the video, he looks much older. The ever-smiling face of Providence's beloved leader had vanished. Jung looked angry. His mouth appeared fixed in a scowl. He glanced at the camera, then lifted his hand to cover the lens. We don't know much about Jung's extradition back to South Korea. By the time of his capture, word of his alleged misdeeds had traveled throughout the country and abroad. His reputation was in tatters, and he had little hope of avoiding jail time. 
But for some reason, the trial process took a very long time. In 2008, he received the news he'd been dreading. He was sentenced to six years of imprisonment on charges of raping female followers. Just a year later, a higher court in South Korea tacked on an additional four years because of the seriousness of the charges. For the second time, Providence needed to maintain the balance of their movement in the absence of their leader. But this time, they were ready. With Jung's blessing, a follower named Jung Jo-un would serve as Jung's conduit to the outside world, delivering sermons and relaying messages on behalf of the Messiah. Jo-un wasn't the savior, but Jung reassured his fellowship that the young successor had a connection to God and could be trusted. Jung's word was gospel, and the group accepted this plan. At over 60 years old, Jung looked down a decade of life behind bars. But this time, he felt hopeful. The group had survived for years without his direct involvement. And now, his most loyal brides could visit him if they wanted to. For the thousands of members of Providence who watched their leader get taken to jail, this was also a moment of hope. To them, Jung showed bravery and grace in the face of endless persecution. If anything, this verdict only emboldened the group. Many female members worked even harder to show their devotion to Jung. They had to fully succumb to his desires to be his perfect brides. Anything to make the Savior happy. Coming up, Providence continues its path of righteousness in the face of a nebulous future. Stay with us. Now back to the story. In 2003, Jung Myung Suk's run from authorities finally ended when he was apprehended in a forest in Hong Kong. Six years later, South Korean authorities sentenced the 64-year-old spiritual leader to a decade behind bars. For the women who came forward to report their assaults and Jung's coercive behavior, this verdict was a relief. At last, this predator could no longer manipulate women into sex acts under the guise of spiritual salvation. His reign of terror was over. At least it seemed that way at first. But for the tens of thousands of people who remained devout members of Providence, Jung's imprisonment proved nothing more than a slight change to a system that already worked surprisingly well. The leader of Providence didn't need to be present for the system to work. For many of the group's outposts abroad, Jung served more like an omniscient, invisible force of good than an actual human being anyway. At least now, Providence members knew where Zhang was. Followers could send him letters, pictures, or even plan to visit him. This access proved to be a massive asset for the group's stability. All across Providence churches, there was little doubt about Zhang's innocence. Regional leaders demanded complete loyalty from their members. And usually, the most persistent display of dedication came from the group's female members. As spiritual brides, these women in Providence were expected to write letters to Jung. Leaders pushed them to write to Jung as if he was their husband or lover. That meant that these letters often strayed into intimate territory, with women describing sex acts and declaring their desire for Jung. Women were also expected to send Jung photographs of themselves along with the letters. 
They were sometimes told to dress in bikinis and wear makeup to beautify themselves for their spiritual husband. Sometimes they were even instructed to photograph themselves in wedding dresses. These women swore their chastity from any man other than Zhang and were called evergreens. Despite his limited connection to the outside world, Zhang found ways to keep his evergreens in his orbit. For example, all the evergreens were given the same special gift. It was a simple silver necklace with a pendant in the shape of a J, encrusted with rhinestones inside a silver oval. Around the J were three small pearls. According to former members, the pearls were meant to represent a vagina. As Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White, a professor at Northern Illinois University, explains, gift-giving can often have ulterior motives in controlling relationships. This is particularly true with narcissists. She writes, narcissists give gifts with an eye to maintaining a relationship with the giver and to maintaining control in that relationship. The necklaces Jung gifted to his evergreens were a tool of control, masked as a message of devotion. This piece of jewelry made his brides feel appreciated, while ultimately serving to label them as his property. The vaginal symbolism, the large rhinestone-encrusted J, every element of the gift was meant to emphasize Jung's sexual power over the women in his group. And it worked. Since Jung couldn't travel to places like Australia, he couldn't perform the so-called purification ritual. But from prison, he could make sure that thousands of women felt beholden to him in other ways. The necklace was part of it, but so too was the expectation that his brides would write him letters and send him photographs. Jung reciprocated this long-distance intimacy. According to a former member named Liz, Jung wrote to her that her white skin arouses him. He also used letters to do his part to continue manipulating women to remain in the group. Another former member, Sarah, shared a letter from Jung, in which he writes, I know that it's hard, but go to church. Don't let your parents know about it, though. His replies were often encouraging, but vague, as if he wrote them quickly and in batches. It isn't clear if Jung ever actually read any of the letters sent to him but every note allowed Jung to reassert his control over the women in his group. It was just another form of collection. The letters were proof of the many women he controlled through these physical objects. Soon, even those efforts weren't enough. Jung looked at the many photographs of his brides, but it wasn't the same as seeing them in the flesh. So he began asking his brides to visit him in prison. That's how, in 2012, Liz and a dozen other women ended up flying 11 hours from Australia to South Korea and taking an hour-long train ride to Daejeon Prison. It's easy to imagine that for Liz and the others, this trip could have felt like meeting a celebrity or God himself. There's no indication that Jung made any comment about the effort it took for these women, many of whom lived in Australia, to come to see him in jail. In his mind, this trip was worthy of the level of devotion he demanded of his brides. Even after all of this, Jung hardly made any effort to spend time with his visitors. He briefly chatted, blew them kisses, and left. For almost anyone, that would be a disappointment. Here, it's easy to see the intense level of power and manipulation that ran throughout Providence. Jung continued exerting control over his growing number of female followers. 
They, in turn, were manipulated into believing that no sacrifice was too great for their savior. The system worked perfectly. Providence continued to thrive in the 2010s. Australia remained a massive hub for Providence, as outposts showed steady membership in multiple cities. And even in South Korea, the group allegedly had over 100,000 members, though it's difficult to validate that number. The only source of membership information comes directly from Providence's website. Throughout the decade, Jung continued operating his group from behind bars. There isn't much information about his successor, Jung Jo-un, or how he helped maintain the movement as its new face, but we do know that he also had a particular fondness for young, beautiful women. One eyewitness report described attending a Providence event where Jung Jo-un was surrounded by an entourage of women that looked like they had just stepped out of a magazine. Despite what appeared to be continued success, this period was marked with continued disillusionment by some female members. And in the 2010s, some more women did leave the group. This was largely due to parents who were shocked to see that their daughters were following the message of a convicted rapist. Both Liz and Sarah, for example, were encouraged to leave by their families. Parents staged interventions with their daughters in an attempt to show them the dangerous nature of Providence. Sometimes this method worked. But most parents weren't as successful. For every story like Liz or Sarah's, there were other, less hopeful tales of parents being unable to convince their daughters to leave the movement. One man named Gary Wegman told ABC's Australian News Service that he found out about his daughter's involvement with Providence through a news broadcast about the group. While at home, a friend called him and told him in an urgent voice, turn on the TV. The show talked about Jung's many female members and how they were expected to serve as spiritual brides to him. In one segment, an image lingered on the screen of a group of women with their faces blurred out. Mr. Wegman immediately recognized his daughter Camilla by her jacket. He had bought it for her. Mr. Wegman explained that he and Camilla still spoke, but she was still a part of the group. Any mention of her life after joining Providence was met with silence. She wouldn't talk about it. This story appeared to be similar to many others. Mr. Wegman described his daughter Camilla as smart, funny, someone who he couldn't imagine belonging to a group like this. But all the same, there she was, smiling with a group of women who had declared themselves brides to Providence's enigmatic leader. Mr. Wegman's story was published in 2017, a year before Jung was set to be released from prison. Leading up to that moment, former members like Liz wondered about the fate of Providence and its enduring power. As Liz said to the Australian news program The Feed in 2014, I don't really know what he thinks will happen when he comes out of prison, but I know he will have a very big following of beautiful women. On February 18, 2018, authorities officially released 73-year-old Jung Myung-sok from Daejeon Prison. Despite a large group of reporters waiting outside the prison, there appears to be only a single photo of Jung from that day. He made no effort to speak to anyone. A group of his helpers quickly led him through the throng into a sedan. Jung got in, closed the door, and left. And strangely, that's the last we've heard of Jung Myung-suk. 
Reports from the day of his release say that authorities fitted him with an ankle monitor, which would suggest that he was being put on house arrest. But after that moment, Jung has stayed out of the media's sight. Jung is still alive and well, possibly living in his compound in Wulmyongdong. While there don't seem to be many current photographs of him, Jung still delivers sermons weekly and publishes them online. He's appeared to have stepped out of the public spotlight, but he's still very much the leader of Providence. The group appears to continue its operations in Australia, Japan, Taiwan, and other countries abroad. The group's website even claims that the movement has a loyal following in the United States. It's hard to know for sure how powerful the group still is, but it's easy to imagine that Jung, wherever he is, still holds considerable power over thousands of female followers, and perhaps he is still searching for more. Maybe his recruiters, those ever-smiling women, are still roaming through shopping malls in Canberra, Sydney, wherever, looking for just one more comfort. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Georgia Hampton, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Brian Petrus. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners. It's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new True Crime Limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.